You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 50 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and as always, I am joined by my co-hosts, David Ian Howe and Connor Johnnen. Um, in this episode, we are talking with uh, Dr. Jesse Toon, an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Fort Lewis College. Um, now, this isn't the first time that Dr. Toon has been a guest on the podcast. He first joined us in episode 37 with Dr. Shane Miller, where we talked about some recent updates on the Cerruti Mastodon site. So we are very excited to have him back on today for a dive into his archaeological career. Good evening, Dr. Toon. How are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Things are going pretty well here. Thanks for having me on again. Nice to, to hang out with you guys and chat about all things archaeology. Yeah. And you are a Southern dude as well. And you are now in Colorado. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. From Middle Tennessee originally and moved around all over the place until landed in Colorado. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember meeting me at my field school per chance? I don't know if you remember that far back. Yeah. Where did we yeah, first okay. meet? Was it Bell's Bend or Topper? It was Bell's Bend. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. yeah. And I was like, who's this dude who looks just like Derek? Because I just saw your ponytail walking by. And Tom Patera, like RIP, mm -hmm. said like, get to know that dude. He's really smart. And I was like, <laughs> oh. And then I think that was the last I saw of you. But yeah, he was right. You are very smart. So where do you currently work? And what is your exact like occupation and you know job there? So right now I'm at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado for hopefully not very much longer. Uh, I'm an assistant professor. I'm actually in the middle of my tenure uh, review right now. So hopefully in a few uh, in a few weeks, it'll be associate. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But yeah, so I've been here at Fort Lewis for six years now, finishing up my 12th semester. Uh, yeah, here wow. at Fort Lewis. Time flies. Yeah. I remember seeing on Facebook that you moved out there and I feel like that was a while ago. Yeah. So yeah, checks it's, out. It's pretty long. It's the longest I've lived in yeah. one place, I think, since I was 18. <laughs> wow. Well, and Durango is kind of an, a nice place to live if you can afford it. And besides that ugly highway that runs to the middle of it and makes everything inaccessible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pros and cons, you know, it's, uh, it's living in a vacation town, right? <laughs> I just realized all of you guys are in Colorado currently and yeah. It's 80 degrees here in Georgia, so not fun for me. <laughs> Dr. Toon, Jesse, uh, your first appearance on episode 37. We talked about the Cerruti Mastodon site, which is uh, a fun site to discuss between archaeologists, especially like-minded ones. Has there been any feedback or that you've received regarding appearing on our podcast a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> I've talked to people online, social media. Some seen people kind of post and comment about, you know, oh, this is a really, you know, great episode, really great hearing people, you know, talk about this. Yeah, that's about it. Haven't had anyone, I guess, directly kind of contact me and ask me questions or anything about it. Fair enough. Yeah, that was definitely really one of my favorite episodes. I think I listened to it when I was uh, driving back from Virginia not too long ago, probably like five or six times. It was really easy just to listen to it, listen to some music and listen to it again, because it's such such a such a good time. And so uh, prior to appearing on our podcast, you know, what what inspired you to become an anthropologist? Like what led you here? That's a, a good question. And unlike many of my, my colleagues, I don't have like one of these fantastic stories of since I was two years old, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Like that, that wasn't my route getting here, right? It was the last thing that I thought about doing 
I went to school in Tennessee, public schools in Tennessee do not have anthropology. So accidentally found anthropology as I was experimenting in college, right, as, as so many other uh, undergrads do. I was actually going to Middle Tennessee State University for a degree in aerospace and realized that that was not the path for me. I didn't realize that until, you know, like my fourth or fifth year there, uh, and I should be finishing that degree. But I always joke, I kind of went alphabetical down the the catalog of courses and departments, right? (laughs) Jumped from aerospace to, to anthropology. And, you know, I took intro to, what was it? I think world prehistory or something like that. Thought, man, this is a pretty cool, uh, cool thing to talk about. And next thing I know, it's years later, and I'm out here in Colorado as a, as a professor myself, you know, teaching intro to anthropology and intro to archaeology and all kinds of other upper level classes as well, right? So, you know, it, it was just kind of one of those things where I had a, a basic interest in history. I had kind of an inquisitive mind, I guess, about things that I didn't know about, right? I, I liked trying to, to research things and find out about the past, about uh, people who were here before us. And one thing, yeah, just kind of led to, to another, and I accidentally found my way into anthropology. That's super cool. And I think that's one of the more interesting routes I think we've heard so far, going from aerospace <laughs> to anth- anthropology is a, is quite the jump. I mean, you might have to calculate velocities and orbital, orbital <laughs> mechanics like periodically, but that's that's about it. So after you finished your degree at Middle Tennessee State, you decided to continue on into into higher education. Um, what what made you choose American University? My mentor at the time, I guess. So, you know, I was finishing up my degree at MTSU. Um, I actually ended up with a degree in anthropology and the aerospace degree. And trying to figure out, you know, what what could I do with this crazy background, right? How do, how do you make this work? And I had early on in my dabbling in, into archaeology at MTSU, got in touch with the, the folks that work at the Tennessee Division of Archaeology, specifically Aaron Dieterwolf, who, you know, has been on here before, and John Brewster as well. And so John Brewster. I remember was, John. Was, yeah. <laughs> he's this hilarious, wonderful genius, really, uh, when it comes to archaeology and, and all things history. It, it's amazing the the encyclopedic knowledge that um, that he walks around with. The long story short, basically, I was volunteering and interning with the people there at the Division of Archaeology in Nashville. I got really interested in stone tools and questions about antiquity of humans in, in the Western Hemisphere, right? Essentially, you know, who were the, the first Americans? And by chance, that's what John Brewster also specialized in. And so he kind of led me on the path of, you know, where he he knew that people were who were studying those types of topics, suggested that maybe I look into American University because of Richard Dent, who was there, who did some work at Johnny Menesink and just across the city over at Catholic. That's where uh, all of the early research for the Thunderbird site had been going on. And so, yeah, just kind of thought, man, D.C. is a cool place to live. I wouldn't mind spending a little time there. There's a program there for me that, uh, you know, seems like it's a good fit. I applied, miraculously got in. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how that went. 
where did you live when you went to American University? Because that's in like Northwest, right near the cathedral. Yeah. Georgetown's not too far away. Like that's a that's more expensive than Boulder. Yeah, it's a it's a rather affluent part of D.C. I lived just a couple of blocks from the cathedral, uh, basically kind of right between the cathedral and American University's campus in like this massive 20 story kind of condo. And yeah, just fortunately found uh, a guy who was renting this single room kind of, you know, just a flat that I could barely sort of afford, kind of. And uh yeah, made it work. <laughs> but yeah, I had a couple. I had a couple friends in undergrad that uh, lived right across the street from the cathedral, and they crammed seven girls into a three-bedroom apartment. And the only nice part about it is like the the top had those patios that you had the sun chairs and everything. You just look out on DC, but it's a small apartment with a lot of women living in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, I know exactly. Um, I think I know exactly those apartments that you're talking about. I had some friends that lived over there as well. And, you know, everywhere it seems like in D.C. has these rooftop uh, kind of patios and great views. And, you know, for someone going to grad school, trying to figure out what they want to do, man, places like D.C., you can't beat that, right? It's just the experiences that that are unachievable anywhere else. I mean, I ended up working with Dennis Stanford. Uh, He was on my master's committee. So, you know, for meeting him for research, I would just hop onto the Metro, go down to the Smithsonian and go up and hang out in Dennis's office and, you know, talk about archaeology. Uh, that was, you know, something that could have never happened anywhere else. Not a bad <sighs> deal. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever uh, have Ben's Chili Bowl while you are in D.C.? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ben's Chili Bowl. Yeah, you got to have that. <laughs> Excellent. And so uh, your master's was like, a, it was public anth, right? It was, a, it was a master's degree in public anthropology. What does that look like? What kind of courses do you have to take? And like, how, how did they define public anthropology at American University? To my knowledge, there are only a couple of places where you can get a degree technically in public anthropology. And as we're talking through all of this, I'm starting to see a theme emerge kind of for the first time, kind of this introspective kind of uh, look back. But I didn't have a very traditional approach to a master's degree in public anthropology in American for a number of reasons. But, you know, in terms of what that program looks like and, and the courses, you know, it's really focused on social justice, on environmental justice. It's really focused on issues of race and ethnicity, resistance, those kind of topics, right? And because of that, most of the department really falls more on the cultural, sociocultural side of anthropology, right? There are actually very few archaeologists there in the department. As soon as I got there, the, the guy that I went to work with, uh, Dent, immediately went on sabbatical. And uh, so I was kind of left trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do. And there was a, a new faculty member, Dan Sayers, who had just started right before I got there. Dan was a his, is a historical archaeologist. Uh, he's now the the chair of the department there. And his interests, research interests, and my research interests could not be you know, further apart. He does maroon settlements and, and race and resistance kind of research. And I do Paleolithic archaeology. You know, we made it work. He was a great advisor, a great mentor. You know, I learned a lot from him. You know, I think the whole department there, uh, including Dan, you know, it's, it's very theoretically grounded. But it's all geared towards essentially, you know, training and producing 
politically active anthropologists. And, you know, if you think about in the United States, archaeology as anthropology and how political archaeology is, whether or not we mean for it to be or we want it to be, it inherently is most of the time. And so I feel like I got a really good grounding in those kinds of, of ideas and, and topics there. Very cool. That's interesting the way they kind of meld together and they seem to seem to work together. I've noticed um, my uh, at CSU, my my course load was heavily um, sociocultural anthropology, stuff like that. It You know, it's not straightforward how that kind of gets into your archaeological thinking, but it, I still think it seeps in to how I think about the past a little bit and how you like try to understand that stuff. So I think it's I just kind of had that connection as as well, you know, thinking that that's that's super cool to to have that as like a some, something in your pocket to use whenever you need it. Yeah. And, you know, if, if nothing else, at the very least, it forces us archaeologists to think about these really interesting sociocultural questions that are critical to our lives today, that were critical to people's lives 10,000 years ago. But as a Paleolithic archaeologist, I'm never going to find direct evidence for much of that, you know, uh, for language, for customs, you know, for how people are, are interacting in, in that way. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it forces us to kind of think about that, right? And, and I think even just simply as, as thinking and considering those kinds of questions and, and ideas, it helps shape the way that we're interpreting the archaeological record sometimes. I think that's really important for, I mean, we, we kind of learned that in theory and touch on it in uh, grad school, but like to have a whole course or a whole like program dedicated to that must be, I mean, it's relevant now for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was fantastic. And then you made your way to Texas A&M university, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So I left American university, finished up that, that master's degree. You know, I, I ultimately left there just because I wanted to, to make sure I was as rounded out you know, academically as I possibly could be. And so I left American University to go to Texas A&M where I was studying with Mike Waters, Ted Gable, and Kelly Graff at the Center for the Study of First Americans. They're very nice people. I met them, I think, a few times now. Yeah, yeah wonderful I talk, people. talk to Mike. Yeah, like encyclopedic knowledge of <laughs> dirt. <laughs> it, it's pretty cool. We'll catch you guys in the uh, next segment. Welcome back to episode 50 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Jesse Toon. This is segment number two. We ended the last segment kind of talking about you going to Texas A&M. I mean, we wanted to kind of expand on that a little bit. Do you mind telling us what your dissertation was on when you got there? Sure. So I thought I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do my, my dissertation on. It was actually some of a holdover from my master's and thesis work, which I was promptly told at, at American was way too ambitious for a master's level project. Uh, like pretty much all master's students, right? You want to go out and, you know, solve the world's problems. And that's well and fine, but you have a limited budget, a limited amount of time, and not as much training as a PhD student. So uh, I go to Texas A&M, the Center for the Study of First Americans there. I was studying under Mike Waters. He was my main advisor. And because of my background from Tennessee and my connections with the Division of Archaeology, who had previously done work at a Mastodon site in Nashville, much of my dissertation was kind of anchored by 
investigating and, and excavating, re-excavating the site called the Coates Hines Litchie site. Initially, it was called the Coates Hines site. And when we went back and, and re-excavated in 2012, we tacked on Litchie to the end of that um, to pay homage to the, at that time, current landowners who were very kind and, and generous to, to let a bunch of dirty archaeologists excavate their backyard, basically, for an entire summer. To basically kind of summarize that part of my dissertation, the Coates Hines Litchie site was initially excavated as a salvage project. It was basically a bunch of mastodon bones eroding out of uh, natural drainage in the middle of what was going to become uh, a subdivision, a, a rather upscale subdivision on the south side of Nashville. During the construction project, the Division of Archaeology got word of these mastodon bones, or these big bones anyways. And so they drive out, they take a look at it, turns out it is mastodon. And for uh, a couple of years, a couple of different periods of time over about two years, they did a salvage excavation, found some mastodon bones as well as bones of other animals and what looked like some stone tools, uh, some undeniably you know, legitimate stone tools, a bifacial projectile point, or at least a, a bifacial fragment of a, of a tool, and then maybe some flakes as well. But there were always some questions about the context and association between those things. There were also a few radiocarbon dates that they initially got in the mid-90s that all came back calibrated about 14,000 years old. And so, you know, that's pre-Clovis by technical definition, right? So when I got to Texas A&M, we decided, Mike Waters thought it was a great idea, we were going to go back and re-excavate the site, try to pull together and answer some of those questions that were outstanding, right? The context, the the context, the age, the geologic kind of setting of the site, what, what the actual association between the bones and the artifacts were. As it turns out, the artifacts that were recovered in the mid-90s were in a secondary context that were adjacent nearby, very close to the mastodon bones, but were technically washed in into this drainage and were not in the same geologic deposits that these bones were actually eroding out of. However, they happen to be sitting literally right beside the bones. Um, geomorphology, right? Geoarchaeology site formation is critical to these early Pleistocene sites, right? Um, early sites in the Americas, late Pleistocene sites. We basically spent a, a summer there excavating that site, reanalyzing some of the previous artifacts that were excavated, some of the bones that were excavated in the 90s, and, and determined that it actually was not a, a kill site where people were hunting mastodons 14,000 years ago. We redated all the sediment and it came back to about 30,000 years old. We found not a single thing that remotely looked like an artifact. And, you know, we're essentially able to, to pull the story together and show that it was completely natural, the formation of this bone bed and then these artifacts are washing in outside of that. And so I had to do something basically with with that uh, in terms of a dissertation and then kind of looked at long-term changes through time with how people were settling in and, and adapting to life in the Mid-South during the Pleistocene-Holocene transition. So I studied Cumberland bifaces and then kind of compared that to some late Paleo-Indian stuff with Dalton technology. Cool. And then it seems like uh, as you kind of continued through your career, you started looking at this time period in a bunch of different locations as kind of like this continuing understanding of these late Pleistocene hunter-gatherers. Yeah, you know, so that's kind of been, you know, post-dissertation kind of really where I've I've gone 
over the last few years, right? Looking at how people adapt to, to new landscapes, right? How people are moving into previously unoccupied parts of the world, moving into these areas during the, the late terminal Pleistocene, learning new landscapes, and then sometimes having to quickly readapt because of large-scale environmental change, right? It's not just climate change, but but environmental change, right? And everything that, that that really kind of gets at, right? It's not just warming temperatures and changes in precipitation. It's also vast, vastly different plant and animal communities, different populations of people are moving in and out that they're having to then readjust to and respond to with these population pressures. Uh, the, the landscape itself is, is changing as well, right? So... Yeah, that's kind of really where a lot of my work has, has been going these last few years. I think that's excellent. Yeah, I think that stuff is super interesting. And I, I know David and Carlton and I have had all had conversations about like the first folks to pop in on the in North America. How do you how do you do that? How do you do that effectively? And how do you not die like all the early European <laughs> folks who came here? You know, it's it's it's, it's a, so like kind of just talking about your, your research that you do you know, today, your research and teaching interests are, are geographically located in U.S. Four Corners, southeastern U.S., and then uh, also northern Europe. So how, how do those geographical localities like intersect with your with your current research? You know, I, I think you can always pick out when you're reading people's bios, right, and kind of their research interests. It doesn't matter who you're talking about. There's always kind of that that oddball thing that gets thrown in there, um, and, and the chuckle there at the end. I can tell you're you're seeing that and going, "Wait, Northern Europe? What is that about?" <laughs> so you know, kind of linking those all together is essentially you know what I was just saying. It's this idea of you know what are people doing at the end of the Ice Age? Uh, and as it turns out, there are a lot of similarities uh, across. The northern hemisphere anyways uh, i haven't really done anything in the southern hemisphere at least yet but yeah across the northern hemisphere we see broad similarity and and not really for any reason that that these people are socially or culturally connected at all it in a lot of ways it's just kind of partly random based on when people are moving into these new areas and, and kind of the similarities of what's happening um, environmentally, but but also, you know, just how people were accessing resources. It's this idea of access to resources, which, you know, I'm really interested in uh, how do people move into a landscape, learn that landscape, learn where those resources are. You know, there's not a Pleistocene Google. You can't Pleistocene Yelp something, you know, where can I get some rock around here? Where's the best mammoth steak that, you know, you can get in town? So, you know, people who have never been to a place before <laughs> got to figure out how to do it. And and as it turns out, there's some similarities in that, right? We as, as humans, as really smart primates, think about things similarly uh, and invent at times similar ways to deal with similar problems. And, you know, so I've, I've moved kind of, branched out from the southeastern U.S., from the Mid-South into kind of the Four Corners, Colorado Plateau area, which resource-wise is night and day different uh, compared to to the southeast, right? We're talking about, you know, a hardwood forest area that's unbelievably humid with lots of precipitation and tornadoes to out here in the Colorado Plateau where it's, you know, an arid desert canyon and tableland environment, and 
there's not much green, you know, that there's so little humidity that most days my knuckles are cracking and bleeding because there's just no moisture in the atmosphere. <laughs> but nevertheless, right, people are still having to do the same thing. They're still figuring out where to, to go get raw material to make tools. They're still figuring out where to, to go to get access to fresh water and to access information, knowledge, and partners in other social groups, right? We see similarities in how people are using the landscape in the Colorado Plateau as they were in the Southeast in terms of using uh, major waterways, rivers as kind of corridors, maybe not necessarily you know, walking down the canyon there that the San Juan River is flowing through or the, the Colorado River is flowing through, but you know, they're at least using that on the landscape as as a corridor, right? You know, maybe not walking in the canyon, but, you know, beside it and, and following animals that, that are drawn to it. And, you know, kind of similar questions got me interested in, in Northern Europe, specifically Ireland. Ireland is an interesting case, and, and I'm happy to, to go on and on about this for, for quite a bit. Um, so sure. we need to come back to it later. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, but Ireland is just, you know, today about 20 kilometers away from the island of Britain. You would think they have a very similar history and ecology, but it was, you know, maybe as recent as nine, 10,000 years ago that Britain wasn't an island. It was just a peninsula in northwestern Europe. But Ireland has always been an island. And it is, you know, basically the very northwestern most extent of Europe. It's kind of out in the Atlantic, sort of by itself. It has, all of this kind of leads to a very unique environmental history, very unique ecology. And there was never a time that people could just walk there. You know, it wasn't just Homo sapiens that colonized what we now, you know, think of as, as the British Isles or British Isle. We see Neanderthals in Southern you know, Britain well before modern humans showed up there, but that never happened in Ireland. And so I got really interested in, well, this island, the size of basically the state of Indiana with a really similar population as well. What happened when people went there? How did they get there? Right. Basic question of, you know, if people are going to migrate and, and move to an island, what do you need? Right. You need a boat. And, and so that kind of led me down this rabbit hole of thinking about when is it ecologically viable to do that? When are people in place, in position to make that jump across with boats to the island of Ireland? And then, you know, kind of mechanically, what did that look like, right? What did that migration and local adaptations look like? And as it turns out, right, Ireland has a, a unique environmental history and it also has a really unique culture history uh, and technological history during the early Holocene compared to the rest of Europe. We see kind of a, a different type of, of tool set, toolkit showing up there that, that doesn't really show up at the same time in the rest of Northern Europe. And it's really because people are just adapting to that environment, right? And so these questions, right, it's this idea of adapting to new environments. It really kind of brings all of my, my research interests together. Was Ireland settled like post-Neolithic, like into the Bronze Age, or was it Paleolithic? So the earliest site in Ireland is up in Northern Ireland at a place called Mount Sandel. And it dates to about calibrated um, 9,800, maybe just a little bit earlier than 9,800. So Mesolithic 
And it gets into this really kind of complicated situation where in Ireland, that's early Mesolithic because it's the first Mesolithic. But in terms of gross time period, that's actually kind of middle or, or late Mesolithic in other parts of, of Europe. And, and so it gets really kind of complicated when you start you know, using sure. kind of terms. And so it, it's important to kind of think about the, the time that we're actually talking about, right? The, the years that we're talking about. Yeah. But basically right at the, during the early Holocene. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause people around that time start to tinker a lot more with like more complex tools and like sophisticated, you know, ways of building things. So it makes sense. They're figuring out boats and going across the, the, I guess, channel. I don't know what's right there, but yeah, I think yeah. it's a channel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you for elucidating that. We, it's interesting. And I, I, I like that approach and kind of, I think Ireland seems like a cool case study. Like you said, you have this channel, you have this water barrier that's like, okay, you know, water's a, <laughs> a channel is a big barrier in the past where we not, might not think of it today as such. Um, we were really excited to ask this question of you. So in episode 37, when you were talking about the Cerruti Mastite with uh, Dr. Shane Miller, he made an X-Files comparison um, between the two yous. He said that he was more of a scully, whereas you are more like a molder regarding the two, like the how you guys view um, Paleo-Indian archaeology. What was he kind of referring to and... Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah. So bringing it back to the states, right, and and my work in, in Paleo-Indian archaeology, the first time that that Shane said that, I thought, man, really, I'm older. How did I get this label? If anyone's a scully, I thought I was a scully. But uh, if we're really being honest about it, and, and kind of thinking about where Shane and I fall on on a lot of these questions about the timing of of first peoples in the Americas. Uh, yeah, it, it's a, a sort of fairly accurate comparison there. Shane and I have worked together for, for years, and we we think similarly about a lot of things. Our our interpretations oftentimes are, are very much in line with one another, but I'm perhaps more open to the notion of of early sites, pre-Clovis sites, then, then maybe he is, right? I don't know. Get us both back on here sometime and, and have us just debate this. I, I don't know, but... Uh, we'll do. <laughs> I, I think that... The episode idea, we're going to jot that down. <laughs> I, I think that the two of us work well together because of this, right? You know, that, that was the impetus for some of my dissertation work. I wanted to investigate proposed pre-Clovis site. And as it turned out, that didn't hold up and it, it wasn't pre-Clovis. That's kind of a, a track record for me as well. I, I've investigated a, a number of sites that, uh, as it turned out, they were not what they were billed to be at, at first. On that note, we'll end this segment and then we'll get oh. back to your uh, your Darth Tuneness, and we'll go... <laughs> bon, bon, dun, 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 dun. Awesome. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 50 of Life Ruins Podcast. And we're here with Dr. Jesse Toon from Fort Lewis College. And so uh, Dr. Toon, in this last segment, we kind of ended with this brief conversation about like this X-Files comparison that Dr. Dr. Miller made. And when I was making this script, I don't know X-Files. And I had to like Google what a scully and a molder was so I could better ask and understand their context. Because I know it conceptually. (laughs) But Shane also refers to you by another name, and that is Darth Tune. Um, <laughs> what is that about? 
Shane has a lot of nicknames. He came up just the other day. He he swore that I was going to have a new nickname. I forgot it now. Um, I'm sure it was something ridiculous and comical, but yeah, um, I have this unfortunate history of many of the sites that I've worked on. Nearly all of the the early Paleo Indian sites that I've worked on across North America have have basically turned out to be something else. This whole thing started when I was, you know, working on my master's thesis and I was supposed to be reanalyzing some prismatic blades from the site over in kind of north central Tennessee, right along the Tennessee River called the Wells Creek Crater Site. It's actually fascinating because the site itself, the archaeological site, is sitting right on top of the central cone of an impact crater. And because of the impact that occurred, like, I think that one was something like 30 million years ago. It exposed all of these geologic deposits that have a lot of chert in them. And so it was this kind of natural attraction for a lot of people to show up there. And yeah, ended up analyzing these, what were supposed to be prismatic blades. And as it turns out, there was not really any prismatic blades in that assemblage. It was initially excavated and studied by a guy named Don Dragu and published, I think, in, what, 1968? And that was the only thing ever really written about the site. And I'm not going to say that Dragoo made everything up, but I'm not not going to say that Dragoo made most things up about that site. (laughs) (laughs) That's a complicated and and long history there, but, but basically that started this unfortunate chain of events for me that site after site that I've worked at has, has turned out to be not really what we thought it was. Right. And that, you know, followed me through my dissertation and the Coates Heinz Litchie site at a few other sites since then as well. Yeah. So I, I suppose that's why. People like ask, like invite you that out to the sites and then they, they hear about your, your, your Darth side that uh, they're like, Oh no, he's going to come here. It's going to change things. He's no, such a nice guy. Just don't invite him out. We're going to just prove our site. And you're the believer too. It's not like Dr. Miller's showing up like, yeah, this one is crap. It's like, you're the one that wants to believe in pre Clovis. You come to these sites and you're like, no, nah, fam, this this isn't what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I would like to think that every time someone says, oh, actually, no, you probably shouldn't come. I would like to think that they're joking when they say that and don't really mean it. But then again, you never <laughs> know. Right. But, but I think that's really why Shane and I uh, do work so well together because um, of that Mulder Scully slash, you know, Darth Toon thing, you know, as Carl Sagan <laughs> said, you know, any any kind of science requires this careful balance between open-mindedness for new ideas, creative thinking, but also, you know, ruthless skepticism. And that's the only way to really, you know, kind of keep the, the field on the right track, right? And, and uh, it's, a, it's a careful balance between those two things, right? Building off this um, skepticism and this kind of uh, process of science, there is this quite outstanding article that just came out fairly fairly recently is this and it's 2020 so it was last year yeah it was in the summer uh summer 2020 yeah and that's this is a a a site they discovered and dated to around what 33,000 years calibrated really pushing back on this um earliest folks 
in, in North America and kind of lit some fires in some places and got people going. Can you can you talk about the article a little bit and and kind of what you think about it? So before we get into there's the two articles, you have Ardalin et al. 2020. And then there's one that was published a little bit beforehand, and that's uh, Becerra uh, Valdivia and Hingham 2020. And it's about a cave in Mexico. And I always mispronounce it. I think we talked about it briefly on the podcast over the summer because I was heated about it. Chiquahit Cave. And so uh, this got brought up because on your CV, you were talking about it. And I'm working with one of those co-authors on a different article about this. So I really wanted to get into it. So speaking of like pre-Clovis sites that might need to get shut down, here's one that you don't even need to visit the site because there's a lot of issues with the, uh, <laughs> with the articles themselves. So why don't you go ahead and, you know, what are your thoughts and um, background on, on these articles, Dr. Tune? <laughs> yeah, so Chikwahiti Cave is... is um is widely problematic for so many reasons. It's the newest, it's the most recent in a long line of very outlandish and grossly unsupported ideas about a pre-last glacial maximum occupation in the Americas. Um, This is, my God, something that the archaeological community has been dealing with for, for decades now. And it seems like there's an increasing rate of these sites that are somehow, for for no good reason, making it into publications, into scientific journals like Nature, Nature and, and Science, right? The most prestigious international science journals in the world. And I hope this doesn't come across as too bold, but frankly, archaeology that shows up in the journal Nature has kind of turned into a laughingstock. The review process for archaeology papers in in the journal Nature has really, it's non-existent largely. And, and Chikwahiti, the those both papers um, related to that, I, I think show that, you know, it's a, it's a great example of of the lack of, of legitimate peer review that is happening for archaeology papers anyways in, in the journal Nature, at least for, for many of them, maybe not all of them, right? There, there's definitely, you know, great researchers uh, doing great, great work, but, but some of these, like Chikwiti Cave, are, are just outlandish. I am somewhat involved in, in some things related to Chikwahiti. Um, and, and I'm a little hesitant to say too much about my involvement in some of that because it, it's ongoing and in review kind of, of research. But, you know, basically there's this really high elevation cave down in central Mexico and a group of researchers think that they have evidence for human occupation there before the last glacial maximum back, you know, the other side of 30,000 years ago. And the quote-unquote artifacts that they've pulled out of there are driveway gravel. It, it's a limestone cave that, you know, is occasionally collapsing. Uh, the limestone is, is, you know, breaking off, falling down into the cave. The cave's massive, so there's a lot of room for it to fall. And it, it's limestone. All of the tools, all of the purported 1,930 tools that they pulled out of that cave are made on the same limestone that the cave is made out of. 
at the bottom of a talus slope running down into the cave itself. Just based on that alone, there, there's essentially no support for, for these things being legitimate tools, right? I mean, I, I forget the exact quote in the, in the original paper, but, it, you know, it's along the lines of, well, these tools, this stone tool technology has never been identified in the Americas before anywhere. And no one recognizes it because it hasn't been found. And we're the only ones that are capable of identifying these stone tools as actual stone tools. It becomes very circular here all of a sudden where you can't, you know, it's not a real hypothesis, right? You, You can't negate it if it's spun in this way, right? If they're arguing that, well, you don't recognize them because you've never seen them before, right? We're all professional archeologists. We're all scientists and have excellent training in what a stone tool actually is, what a bifacial point actually is, right? <laughs> and, and the pictures that Absolutely. are in that, that paper are just plain and simple, not, you know, stone tools that, that we see anywhere, at least anywhere outside of old one technology in East Africa, you know, 3 million years ago, 2.6 million years ago. So, yeah, Chikwiti Cave has a lot of problems. There's some site formation issues going on there that were not addressed. Yeah, it's problematic. I'm seeing some dualities between this and Saruti, right? Like you're talking about the geomorphology there is pretty bad, but also it's like the the tool assemblage is just like what's present. And that's like the same thing with Saruti. It's like, okay, the geomorph is off and you're telling me they butchered all these, this mastodon with the same stuff that these bulldozers are kicking up, like nothing non-local, you know, because I remember this article coming out in nature. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing for, I think like publishing a controversial article at the, like this in the summer is usually that's like the time to publish something controversial, right? All the archaeologists <laughs> are out. They're in the field. No one has internet access. And then the one summer where everyone's at home and bored and pissed off for being stuck inside, you drop this in nature and yeah. then it went everywhere. Like every archaeologist was like, not today, fam, not on my watch. <laughs> so do you remember like, <laughs> you, you see this, I imagine it was, uh, I met, are you subscribed to nature or is it just like kind of what gets posted uh, on social media? No, I, I just, uh, yeah, just see archaeology stuff that comes out of that. Yeah. I don't subscribe necessarily to, to nature. Yeah. Did you, uh, was the first person you talked to, was that Dr. Miller? Did you like, Hey, did you read this yet? <laughs> so I have a, an ongoing group text with, with Shane and a few other people where, you know, it's basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like anything outlandish and, and crazy archaeology. You know, you'll it's nothing to wake up in the morning and have, you know, 75 texts from Shane at one o'clock in the morning because he's reading something. And, and I'll do the same thing. Right. I, I don't remember exactly how it all played out immediately. But, yeah, pretty much as soon as it came out, all of us were just running around with our hair on fire going wait, is this, a joke? <laughs> this got published in nature. How did this happen? <laughs> yeah. You guys are like, uh, you guys are like the Marvel superheroes, you know, <laughs> work at 24 seven. If the bat, if the bat sign comes <laughs> out there or no, I'm not, I'm DC. Sorry, DC. Yeah. If, the, if your bat signs out there, you know, you show up and start, start defending. I, and we appreciate that. <laughs> It's less superheroes and just way more hardcore archaeology dorks about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like an, another 
problematic piece with this article, right, that we haven't touched on yet, is that they, uh, in Ardlin at All 2020, they cite a different article written by one of the other authors talking about how he believes that the Americas weren't inhabited by first by the ancestors of the indigenous North Americans and that they're using Chiquahit. Is that what I saying that right? Chiquahit? Chiquita? Taquito? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's Chiquahiti. Chiquahiti. Yeah. Uh, the inhabitants <laughs> of uh, Chiquahiti Cave were not ancestral to indigenous North Americans, that there was another group prior to that, which has its own set of connotations that is a big no-no. Right. This is the thing, right? We, we could literally spend two hours just talking about this one paper and this one site. And, and what you're, you're getting at there is, is a really big deal, right? It's this idea that we're responsible for our research, for our data, and, and the implications of that, right? We're producing information and knowledge that can then get skewed and misappropriated to to mean different things right and yeah so not in the paper itself i believe but in some interviews related to it the authors for the chiquiti cave paper say that the inhabitants these lg sorry pre-lgm inhabitants of the cave uh were not related to modern day native americans and uh that's wildly problematic for so many reasons um and it doesn't fit with any of the other data, any types of data that we know about, right? Um, genetically, archaeologically, environmentally, right? When we're talking about when you could actually migrate into the Americas, none of this lines up. And to say that there's this mysterious group of people that lived in a cave for 20,000 years, made a technology, a stone tool technology that has never been seen before or since, it remained unchanged for those 20,000 years. And then they just disappeared. That is tough to get your head around, right? That doesn't hold up logically when we start thinking about the rest of North American archaeology. Yeah, maybe we'll have to have you come back on with uh, with Shane. and We can talk more <laughs> in depth about this article. Because that, that Saruti site, Settlers of Saruti, as it was dubbed, oh, right, yeah. is one of our most popular episodes so far, and I've gotten really good reviews, and people really <laughs> liked uh, yours and Dr. Miller's conversation. <laughs> so, you know, before we end the show, Dr. Toon, what are a couple sources that you'd recommend for anyone interested in, uh, you know, Paleo-Indian, early Paleo-Indian archaeology? Yeah, so, you know, early Paleo-Indian archaeology, I think anyone who's interested in in this a good starting point is david Meltzer's first peoples in a new world colonizing ice age america i use it in my ice age north america class it's you know easy approachable and fairly up to date it's a few years old now and so some things are are changing but you know start there go over to mercy Rockman and James Steele's book, The Colonization of Unfamiliar Landscapes, The Archaeology of Adaptation. It's a go-to. It's one of my favorites, right? It really gets at the heart of a lot of these questions about what do people do when they move into a place that people have never been before, right? What is, you know, this, this idea of colonization processes that we see people going through again and again at the end of the Pleistocene around the world, right? Yeah. So, you know, if we're talking about archaeology of early Paleo-Indians and, and migrations, those are kind of two of my favorites. 
Cool. Um, First Peoples has some awesome pictures in it too. It's a it's a cool looking book. Yeah, it yes. does. Mm-hmm. That's a good like coffee table book. Like, if you want to impress people, like you're an intellectual, get that book and <laughs> set on that coffee table. <laughs> so, Doctor Tune, where can people find you on uh, social media or like academia websites? So uh, on Twitter is kind of my research. Twitter handle is just JW Tune. Okay. Twitter, and then you know, have a, a website for the lab, the Hunter Gatherer Research Collaborative in Lab, the Hunger Collab, as it's as it's called. <laughs> uh, that's a, a web page on Weebly. I don't know, maybe we can link to that or, or something. Um, yeah, we'll we'll drop all that in the uh, show notes and cool. on our on our social media post. We'll put both of those put those in there. Awesome. So thank you so much for being on. Since this is your first second time on this. <laughs> no, your second first time on this. We usually ask this question about like ultimately, would you ch- choose to be Darth Tune and change <laughs> archaeology and be awesome again? Yeah, you know, I uh, I have no qualms about the the path that I took to get here and would happily do it again. Yeah. Awesome. Excellent. Well, with that, we just interviewed Darth Toon, I mean, uh, Dr. Jesse Toon, Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology at Fort Lewis College. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at JWToon. Please be sure to give us a review on um, iTunes or Spotify, wherever you find it, or send us another email, hopefully a polite one. Uh, it'd be great. We need to get some feedback on what we're doing. It'd be great. <laughs> and with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So the difference between a numerator and a denominator is a short line. Only a fraction of people will understand this. Thank you, Dean. Is that from Dean? That's Is that a Dean, Dean joke? That's not the, the Dean website joke. Excellent. Thank you, Connor. And with that, we're really out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.